welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly, I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro, uh, back here in Sports Pro Towers in Victoria with Sports Pro Senior Writer Sam Carp. Hello Sam. Hi Owen, how are you doing? I am doing very well, Sam. Lovely summer's day, lovely summer's week it we're is. having it is. here in London. Uh, summer has come to join us just in time for the busy run of sporting events that we still have ongoing here. Just the two of us this week, Sam, but we can make it if we try, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit later on about what people do when they're sitting inside watching the television, broadcast consumption, the free-to-air puzzle. Uh, reach versus revenue, all that kind of stuff. But before that, Sam, you have enjoyed a, a lovely weekend. I have. At the London Stadium, MLB playing its first London series, the New York Yankees sweeping the Boston Red Sox uh, at the home of British Athletics and West Ham United. <laughs> what were your first impressions of baseball in the UK? Well, I think the kind of the first impression was that it, it looks like a like a baseball venue, which I guess was an important thing. And I think Rob Manfred, the MLB commissioner, has been saying ever since that that was kind of the biggest consideration or the biggest obstacle for them to overcome was kind of identifying somewhere that could kind of be, I guess, adapted to sort of to fit that sort of unique diamond diamond shaped feel that they have. And it certainly looks a lot more like a baseball venue than a did a football one anyway. I'm sure West Ham fans will be glad to hear. Um, Having um, having attended some games in the US as well, it kind of felt like that that whole experience was something that they were able to transfer over to London. Whether it was whether it was kind of the seventh inning stretch where you got everyone standing up and seeing take me out to the ball game, or just kind of you know those those little touches which you see with the NFL and the NBA games where it's kind of the concession stands and people queuing up to get some merchandise, which I think is one of you know the more unique things from MLB in the sense that these teams logos are kind of symbolic of their cities and it's mm. it was um it was yeah i think it was a it was a good test run um but it i think it'll be interesting to see whether they're able to repeat it next year you know when it kind of the novelty of it wears off yeah obviously you don't have any survey data of your own no no certainly nothing you were able to work up in the the space of a, an afternoon uh, in east london but did you get the impression it was a knowledgeable crowd that it was a baseball crowd or that it was a big event crowd? A good question. Well, I think um, I think what was noticeable was that there were quite a lot of Americans there. Um, 70%, I think. 70% UK, 30% UK, Americans. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, th- I guess it helps that it was obviously two of, two of the league's biggest franchises, um, two teams located on the East Coast, so it's not particularly far for them to travel. It's kind of something which they could fit into a wider holiday. So... Um, you did get the impression that there were a lot of Americans who had made the trip. Um, from the UK perspective, yeah, yeah. I mean, it did it did feel like a fairly knowledgeable crowd, and you know, people people knew when to react. But I think a, something about a baseball baseball crowds is quite similar to cricket in the sense that people are there. You know, they can mm. they can zone in and out. They know when to cheer. You know, people know to cheer when a ball goes over the boundary for six in cricket. People know to shout really loud when um, when someone's hit a home run in baseball or when someone hits the home plate. But I think um, kind of having that mix of of both the uh, the UK audience and the US audience kind of helps it. They kind of spurred each other on to an extent because you had um, you obviously had those locals chanting the let's go Yankees, let's go Red Sox. Yeah. That kind of you get people joining in with that, and um, 
there was a there was a there was a heavy involvement from those US fans in the sense that they'd they sort of get up and start cheering when even even if it hadn't been a home run they just knew when to react and people around them would kind of would play off that and so yeah you got the sense that maybe initially not the most knowledgeable but by the end people left with a better understanding of the game yeah yeah it's an interesting exercise for MLB because I think that they have by their own admission got more ground to catch up than the other major leagues who've brought games here you know, perhaps they have a, a bigger footprint than NHL would have, for example. But compared to the NFL and the NBA, people's understanding of baseball is a little bit further behind. Certainly their understanding of, of MLB is a little bit further behind. MLB has a bit less of a media presence here. But they have invested in a big way in, in bringing, I guess, the best of their product, for, for want of a better expression, uh, to London. Um, Daniel Kaplan in The Athletic reporting that they will have invested, lost, used up as a lost leader, however you want to frame it, $10 million on this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously bringing their two best known teams here, bringing the, the champions here. Um, and on marketing spend, I mean, there's been, it's been quite noticeable around London, some of the, the physical installations you've had in train stations and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, some of the digital spend, all that type of stuff on, yeah. on marketing. I think, um, I think from that perspective, though, something from a promotional point of view anyway, I think maybe something they can learn next year is possibly to come out a little earlier. Mm. You know, um, I had a look before, uh, just before we started, started recording and the turnaround for the Yankees, they had two days in between their game at Yankee Stadium against the Toronto Blue Jays and... Um, and throwing the first pitch against the Red Sox. So, you know, I think when the when the NFL and the NBA have come in the past, there's always kind of you know you have these player appearances. There's always lots of lots of photos, say for example, of players with athletes from uh, from UK sports. Um, yeah. Whereas you, I don't know, I didn't really get as much of a feel for that this time. Where yeah. You kind of there wasn't as much awareness of it, I don't think. And maybe I don't know, having having a week in the build up to the game would kind of build more awareness of it make people more excited yeah. and you know just I guess one of the one of the main ways to build up an affiliation is to get people to know the players and I think there was still kind of a lack of that this time around it's tricky isn't it we've, we've talked about it being a busy summer I mean I know um, there were some MLB events around about January they brought Alex Rodriguez out and they had the announcement of their title sponsorship but we talk about it being a busy summer and the capacity for the BBC for example, which was showing the game but carrying it on red button, which I thought was um, an indication of, of the, the, the work that MLB is going to have to do to kind of puncture public consciousness a bit. BBC is obviously showing the Women's World Cup right now on its linear TV channels, and then the rest of its capacity more or less is, is used up on, on Cricket World Cup coverage. BT Sport was also involved, but it doesn't have the same marketing clout or certainly not the same reach. And then... From in terms of mainstream media pickup, you know, it, it is we are coming into Wimbledon and we're coming into uh, and we've just come off the back of Ascot and all these things that are kind of consuming quite a lot of mm-hmm. um, of the British media's time. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. I think it is that they have to put people in front of people. They have to kind of almost make the story for them. I guess that's a, a learning exercise for them. Yeah. Uh, from this first year. I mean, it's difficult though because obviously their their season is so long. There are so many games to fit mm. into a fit into a short space of time where I guess the advantage for the NFL is that they have a 16 game regular season they can they, they can afford to send these teams out here for, for a week in advance and yeah. do all this promotional stuff around it but I guess you know I think 
baseball to an extent is kind of a more global sport than American football is. More people kind of know about it um, already. And I, I don't know, I can't really remember back to the first NFL game, but was there that much kind of, you know, was there that much excitement around it at the time? Was, there, was I think, it I guess, I, something that like builds up, isn't it? Yeah, the novelty factor would have been, would have lent itself to a lot of coverage and also the fact that it was covered live on BBC One. And the fact, again, it's October, so you have the mm. football season in full swing. Yeah. Um, but that's week to week stuff and kind of manages itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is just space in the um, in, in in media output to to carry everything. Um, an interesting stat from the game, Sam, talking about the NFL. Mm-hmm. Uh, MLB's first game in London, higher scoring than <laughs> the NFL's. Um, back in whenever it was 2007. Did, did the London Stadium feel like it should be a baseball stadium to you? Was, that, was there anything in that or was it a bit of a freak? Was it? I mean, yeah, I, as I was saying before, it's kind of, it's, it was a very surprising scoreline. And I think um, for a lot of the traditionalists and the, the American fans who were there, it wasn't actually a, a great game, you know, because um, I think a lot of them were saying that it was bad pitching or whatever, whereas the players were obviously selling the line that it was a, it was a victory for, for good mm. hitting. But it did, you did kind of get the sense that maybe the outfield wall had been brought in at about 10 <laughs> feet or so. Or, um, but they were also, you know, they had to use artificial turf, which I think, um, which I think might have had an effect on the fielders. Um, there, are a number, there are a number of factors. And, you know, there's, um, it's a little bit like cricket in the sense that the atmosphere can actually play, can actually play a role in terms of how far the ball travels and, mm. and whatever else. And I think maybe perhaps the London Stadium on this, this occasion was more conducive to a high scoring game. And another good stat, uh, while we're on the topic of that, is that both teams scored six runs in the first innings um, of the first ever London game, which is the first time that's happened in MLB fixture since 1989. That is quite a stat. Also, baseball's highest attendances in 16 years, or Major League Baseball's highest attendances in 16 years. So I think whatever there may be to learn, whatever shortcomings there may be, it's certainly a place to build from Mm -hmm. for baseball. And I think... They will. They're bringing Chicago Cubs here next year with the St. Louis Cardinals. So they're, you know, they're throwing something at it again. Yeah. And they've they've got places they can go to from here. Yeah. Rob Manfred has even said, um, you know, that he wants he wants sustainable play in Europe. He's t- already talking about the idea of um, of playing in other European cities. Said they've been in discussions. So you know, it's not it's not just a commitment to London. It's a it's a wider commitment mm. to, the, to the entire continent. And um, just based on that attendance figure, it'll, it'll be something which they which they can build off, as you say. And it's even it's even something that has spurred them to. Well, I don't know if it's directly related, but they've they've actually changed plans to have their to have their season opener in Asia next year. Mm. Um, and Manfred was kind of talking about that in the same context of you know we want to we want to focus more of our efforts on Europe now because you know in Asia they've already got that. A stronghold in Japan, really. A lot of their, a lot of their players come from there. Whereas I think I read earlier that um, the Yankees shortstop was one of th- only three uh, players who's out of Europe. So you know, that's kind of one way to build. As we were saying before, it's one way to build an affiliation with a new fan base. Is you know, get more and more athletes from that market yeah. playing in the major league. So yeah. if they can source, you know, one or two more players from the European market, that's a, a host of fans will come with them. Yeah, Tokyo and Monterey, the other international destinations for MLB this year. Mm. Interesting point you make about bringing players in. Today, actually, as we're speaking, Mm. the NFL is hosting its academy trials, the NFL Academy, which it launched uh, last month, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, where they're going to have a school in northeast London that brings in a class of NFL prospects, Mm. teaches them 
the game and teaches them character development alongside their kind of A-level or B-tech mm-hmm. uh, education. That does a few things to the NFL, and if you look on sportspromedia.com, there is a piece by me on this very subject from a couple of weeks past. Diversifies their media play, gives them a few different stories to tell, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, allows them to build closer relationships with the local authorities, and I think this is where NFL has stolen a march on, on the other major leagues, is their relationship with the mayor's office, uh, their relationship with the British government, obviously back in the pre kind of Brexit swirl of chaos days. Um, I know George Osborne was a big fan of bringing a team to London and I'm sure those conversations will start again once everything calms down. But yeah, it does create that talent pathway as well for the NFL. And I think that's a really interesting opportunity for MLB because it's such a low entry sport, baseball. You know, it's a very simple one to set up games and parks and, you know, there's a big crossover in terms of skill set with cricket yeah and promotionally i'm sure when the england players and and so on are, are less busy there there might be opportunities to do kind of the, the kind of cross promotional activities that you're you're talking about sure um and that would i'm sure be welcomed to the profile of major league baseball's kind of media operation mm. um and it's an accessible game in a way that american football just really really is um and i think that that could be a route in, that could be a way of, of really generating some enthusiasm for the game mm. and you know, tying that together with some of the marketing efforts and you know, some of the repeat media efforts that we have here uh, in, in the years to come. But certainly it sounds like they are enthused by their start and um, yeah. looking forward to what's to come. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that will probably cover it for part one of this Sports Pro podcast. Uh, join us again. We're going to be talking about media consumption right after this. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast. Um, Sam, before we carry on, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about media consumption trends and stuff like that yeah and and reach and you know in the context of uh women's world cup and the cricket world cup and various other events this year but before that we've got to talk about our own events get some housekeeping we don't have to we want to we have the privilege we should of letting people know about the sports pro fan conference which we've spoken about on the podcast before that will be taking place on the 10th of september if you're in the business of the fan relationship um, lots for you to get your teeth into there across content, social uh, and sponsorship it's going to be taking place at the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium revealed revealed. <laughs> new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium will be the venue, Sports Pro heading there for the, the very first time have you um, been before? Uh, no, not yet right. not yet, have you? I have, I have, it's an uh, old hat for me now having ah, been well. there for the opening game but you know I'll probably venture back for the fan conference. <laughs> worth worth the visit for the fan conference, you think? I think so, yeah, probably just about, just about. <laughs> well, if that, if that glowing uh, review of the Premier League's newest and shiniest... Europe's newest and shiniest. Yeah, Europe's newest and shiniest football venue is not enough to convince you to come along, then the fact that you would be joining the likes of Rakuten, New Era, Budweiser, Vitality, the FA, LucasAid, Barclays, uh, and the aforementioned... Major League Baseball hopefully will 
sportsprofan.com for details for that one. A um, couple of other Sports Pro events to tell you about the Black Book Motorsport Forum. Uh, that's going to be returning on the 28th of August at the Leonardo Royal Hotel in London. It's the global meeting place for the motorsport industry, and we can expect some big teams, series, and brands to be there, uh, including Formula One, the W Series, NASCAR, MotoGP, New Balance, uh, many more to be confirmed, I'm sure, in the weeks ahead. BlackBookMotorsportForum.com to find out how you can get a pass for that one. And the Sports Pro OTT Summit returning to Madrid for its third edition from the 19th to the 21st of November. You can expect the biggest and the best from the world of digital broadcasting. Uh, we've already got the likes of DAZN, Google, the European Tour, and Twitter confirmed. Um, there will be plenty plenty to follow them in the months ahead, but you will want to get in early and make sure you get a pass for that. Sportspro-ott.com for all the relevant information, including how you can join us. Right. Tease us up nicely, Sam, to talk about talk about the broadcast sector and the changing pressures of uh, digital media and the range of approaches that rights holders and broadcasters can take to find their audience. Um, There's been a lot of discussion about this in the last few weeks because of the perception, at least, of the relative impact. Um, and this is, this is quite a UK-centric conversation, but the relative impact of the FIFA Women's World Cup and the Men's Cricket World Cup, which are going on concurrently just at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. um, both teams represented. I think by the time you hear this podcast, you'll have an idea of their prospects for the rest of the tournament. Um, so we won't comment um, on how England's uh, Lionesses and um, England's cricket team are going to get on. But one of those competitions obviously doesn't have, at least on the women's side, doesn't have a massive media infrastructure around it, although it is growing. And the other one does, but it's behind a paywall. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Women's World Cup on the BBC every night, getting more or less the kind of coverage that you'd expect from a men's tournament. And we're seeing that reflected in viewing figures. Men's Cricket World Cup, as with almost all live English cricket for the last 15 years on Sky Sports. And having a, a kind of shallower, or at least in, you know, in terms of anecdotally, the impression that people are getting is, is it's having a shallower impact outside of, uh, of the cricket fan base where it is kind of being quite hungrily consumed. Would that be a fair reflection on your, of, of how you see it? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously the figures, uh, naturally you'd expect something on free to, uh, to be generating much higher figures. And obviously I think the latest one to come out for the Lionesses was 7.6 million mm. uh, for the game against Norway. And I think that was the third time the BBC has broken its own record for a, for a peak audience. Um, for, for a women's women's football women's women's soccer game, but it's also, yeah. it was interesting. You and said so, about um, and seven point six million. Sorry to to jump in, but that's a big audience for sport outside the Olympics or men's football. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's and I think that it's a it's a major event, but it's also it's still a football event, and you know there's uh, I think an accessibility there to to it being a, a football tournament as as much as a kind of cultural event around this this great coming out of women's sport. Yeah, and I mean I think also. You mentioned this kind of being a UK-centric conversation, but if you look at uh, some of the other some of the other markets out there, the US, I think Fox, which mm. isn't necessarily um, obviously free to air, that's been breaking its viewership numbers. Um, France, obviously the host nation, has seen some 
really big numbers come in for their games. Um, so I think you kind of also have to place it in that context of that growing interest in women's football as well. This isn't kind of just a result of the coverage being on free to wear. It's also kind of a result of the hard work which has gone in sort of over that time to grow interest around it. Um, yeah. I think obviously four years ago we've spoken about this before that less people maybe knew it was on, less people were interested. Whereas now... Time zone as well, uh, I think. Time zone it? as well, yeah. Whereas now, obviously, you know, here, particularly the Lionesses, um, are more popular than they've, than they've ever been. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of, it's, you know, it's a product of that. And then whereas cricket, as you say, it's been behind this paywall for so long now, um, that it's kind of, you know, that's, it's, it's not a surprise to see these numbers. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, there is a need to... There's a piece on the site by our friends uh, at Octagon. By our friends at Octagon, um, and that spoke of the need to compare apples with apples. Mm-hmm. And you know, a free-to-air prime-time audience for a 90-minute game is not going to be the same as an audience, an average audience at least for an eight-hour game on uh, on pay TV mm-hmm. through the working day. Mm-hmm. And then the argument that, of course, is made about the value in terms of engagement of uh, of free-to-air is that there are other channels that you can utilize and that, you know, uh, and then that they are being utilized by, um, by ICC in this case, because they are the ones who sell, uh, sell the rights centrally to the cricket world cup. And there were 12.3 million YouTube views, um, of England's game against Sri Lanka, uh, in two days, YouTube views of, of the highlights to that game. How many of those were just Lasseth Malinga rewatching his performance? I don't know. It's me watching Lasseth when this performance. <laughs> but um, I think it's, it's and you, you know, you have to remember that kind of one of these is is football, mm. you know, it's um, and the other one is cricket. So you're comparing two sports, which obviously have massively different popularity, and like a lot, um, football has much more followers, regardless of it being women's football. Now you know we're trying to move this conversation into yeah. stripping away that word, and, and it's quite interesting actually. I spoke to Anna Thompson the other week who is the who is BBC Sports women's football lead mm. and obviously the BBC uh, while they only have live coverage of the Women's World Cup they are obviously doing clips from both the Cricket World Cup and the Women's World Cup posting highlights after the games and she was telling me that the clips for the Women's World Cup have been performing better mm. so that's kind of you know that's sort of one area where you could also look at it and sort of kind of you know and go you know well one is a more popular sport so yeah. these figures the figures are also going to be skewed by that as well whereas you know cricket does have a much more niche following it's I guess maybe when it was on free to air it was much more in the mainstream but I can't I personally can't remember that far yeah I think there's so one of the one of the things that's animating this debate obviously is is the idea that this is a moment to capture the popular imagination for cricket. They've got a team that was going into the tournament very heavily favoured to go quite a long way. Um, six weeks in the limelight, ashes to follow, you know, free-to-air, we'll, we'll get onto that, but free-to-air to follow next year as well in, in a limited respect. Um, and there's been a kind of, on an anecdotal level, there's been almost a, an obsession with looking for signs that it's breaking out. And there are much more complicated factors at play when it comes to that than there are just looking at TV audience figures. And there are much more complicated factors as to why it feels like the Cricket World Cup isn't breaking through in the same way as the Women's World Cup is. And then, you know, some are to do with the fact that it's a football tournament and a, a cricket tournament. And just to, 
you know, off of my perspective, I remember when cricket was on free-to-air all the time, it mm-hmm. still felt like a minority pursuit relative yep. to football, and it still had a committed core audience and a bigger casual audience and an audience who just were never going to be interested in it. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you think of the, of the 99 World Cup, which would have got decent figures on BBC, but still have been ignored by, by yeah. a decent number of people. But when you look at the presence of it in kind of mainstream media, some of the other things to consider are the level of marketing support from, particularly from sponsors. You know, the Cricket World Cup globally, or at least in its its territories, is a very big deal. And in India, it's an enormous deal. And the viewing figures are reflecting that in India. I mean, what was it? Hotstar got 100 Hotstar, million. Hunted, yeah. First time, I think it's the first time possibly at record or its highest ever sort of daily yeah, daily engagement for India, like, Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, during that day, 100 million users, which is on an OTT service as opposed yeah. to you know the, the the viewing figures would have been in the kind of mid hundreds of millions, 300, 400 million. Yeah, and I think the commercial package, which again is managed by the ICC centrally, reflects that. Yeah. Um, so you have sponsors in key categories. The one that that springs to mind most obviously because I'd never heard of them before <laughs> is Bira, which is the official beer sponsor and official hot sauce sponsor. I'm not sure how they make both of those things, but... Um, Hopefully not at the same time. <laughs> well, maybe it depends what you're eating. Yeah. But they are in a, in a category where you'd expect the sponsor to do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of getting into shops, television advertising spend, billboard spend, all that type of stuff. But all of their activity is going to be focused right back at South Asia mm-hmm. rather than British consumers. Those decisions have been taken near enough across the board and where activation comes in it's all going to be much more efficiently used in in Asia and whether there's a case then to say that you carve out something for the local organizers to sell or what it is or that they have to just make more of a commitment themselves Sky have to make more of a commitment themselves whoever is involved with the game here to to make that presence felt a bit more strongly I don't know you contrast that with what's going on with the women's world cup and this, there was obviously a lot of conversation about this going into the tournament with Visa and, and a couple of others talking about matching their marketing spend from men's tournaments. A curious thing, I don't know how much of the, the Cricket World Cup you've caught on Sky, but a curious thing I've noticed is how much advertising there is for the Women's World Cup from Women's World Cup sponsors sure. during ad breaks, particularly ones not involving, uh, not involving South Asian teams where you know there's a little bit more specialisation. So the, the two biggest advertisers that I can see are or the three biggest advertisers I can see are Pepe's Chicken with their (laughs) special ultra localized national TV campaign which is is a case study in and of itself and is extraordinary and then Visa and Qatar Airways who have gone just blanketed everything talking about the Women's World Cup I don't know whether that's because they just have that spend in this you know in, in this territory to and they need to unload it I'd say a big part of it is going to be because there's a free-to-air audience there on the BBC that they can't access. Yeah. And so this is their way of, of making that association with the Women's World Cup felt. So it's, it's you know, again, these, these dynamics all, all come into play. But what I would say is that free-to-air and the kind of immediate accessible reach is an essential part. This is my opinion, is an essential part of any rights holders arsenal. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at the only free-to-air, it's been well documented, the only free-to-air exposure really on linear TV anyway, that that's the Cricket World Cup has been getting has been kind of 
she horned in at yeah. half past midnight and when basically no one's no one's watching their TVs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's not, it's, it's it's been buried, I guess you could say, in the sense that it's behind a paywall. It's not really been made accessible to a wider audience. But I was actually talking to Tom, our digital editor, about this <laughs> before I came downstairs and asking, you know, it's, would it would it make that much difference? And obviously, because we've seen the the the, um, the stats go down since it was taken off Channel Four, which incidentally was kind of how I got into cricket personally. Yeah. That one Ashes summer, which we all hark back to when <laughs> England finally won back the Ashes against Australia, and um, you just kind of wonder now when are we going to see that boom again without kind of you know making it accessible on a platform like that. But at the same time, there's a generation past now, um, which I guess we'll start talking about in the sense that people consume sports in different ways now so if yeah. you were to return cricket to free to wear would it have the same effect and well what the response has been of course the ecb in this country may now want that presence on free to wear they didn't 15 years ago to the extent that they actually lobbied to have the law changed mm-hmm. or the regulations changed so they wouldn't have to protect certain games for free to wear but i think they have now seen that there is this gap in their cycle um, their, their funnel, whatever you want to call it, for, for attracting new new fans, and they have created a new concept entirely for that completely new viewer, rather than just you know the kind of accidental discovery method of um, of 20 years ago. This is the hundred, of course, that that I'm talking about, and this it's an entirely different question for another day. In it, but it might be that you see more rights holders taking that approach of. Right. What's our discovery product? What are we? You know, how do we attract people in a way that's palatable to a, a, an entertainment media platform like the BBC yeah. um, or you know, like a free-to-air channel? I think that we are coming to the end of a generation where the approach of pay TV, just buying stuff up and not leaving anything behind, is going to work. Mm-hmm. because who are the next generation of buyers for Sky Sports relative to, you know, early 2000s, uh, cricket being a very fam- very familiar presence on free-to-air TV, there being a very big kind of natural fan base there who would follow it to Sky if there were, what was the, I think the peak audience was about 9 million on Channel 4, that then drops to whatever it is on Sky, but you have enough people who are committed to paying a subscription you know people get older yeah um and you, you it's as, as important to the pay tv operators to have a natural regeneration of of, of support for uh, an interest in a sport because otherwise the value of having that sport you know is only going to go down the, the mm. demand is only going to go down mm. so i think that you, you'll see that slightly more balanced approach coming in uh, in the next few cycles. I don't think you can kind of undersell the power of success either. Even going back to just kind of that Channel 4 summer, which mm. I mentioned, alluded to before, it's kind of, you know, that was an England team at the peak of its powers and in the test arena at least. And then you look at now, which is why I think a lot of people were considering it such a missed, missed opportunity is because going into this tournament it's one of the very few occasions where England have or maybe the only occasion, I don't know, but the only occasion in my memory at least where England have gone into a tournament as the as the favourites and there was kind of, you know, there was the kind of gap to to showcase it, showcase the sport as yeah. As kind of like, you know, this is this is the team you should be getting behind, this is the, you should be going and picking up a bat. Um yeah. 
hitting a ball and you know I think that's why a lot of people feel that this is the, this, that's the trick that they've missed. Interestingly enough, I was at an event this morning at the Oval, funnily enough, coincidentally, um, but with uh, Gravio looking at the launch of their Global Video Trends report. Um, one of their guests was Sarah Beatty, who's the VP of PR, comms and new markets at DAZN. And, and, and I did actually ask her about the development of the rights holder broadcaster relationship um, and how that was going to change in the kind of OTT era and, you know, with rights holders maybe wanting to become media entities of their own rather than just rights selling factories mm. um, and you know yeah she was basically saying you are going to see more of a partnership model emerge you are going to see more of a kind of joint venture mentality mm. uh, come into the way that that media rights are uh, are developed and that media projects are developed I mean zone have done it themselves in a couple of different ways with match room in the states um trying to develop a you know an approach to, to reviving boxing in the american market and they targeted fight sports because they saw it as a, a gap in the market somewhere that they could be disruptive and then you look at the j league in japan and they've they're working together in all sorts of ways bringing helping to bring players over and and all the rest of it um and you've seen it at different levels here i mean sky sports work with netball has been interesting yeah and the way the um yeah, the way the 100 comes together with, with the help of its broadcast partners will be interesting. But there we go. Um, did you, you get a chance to look at the Gravio Global Video Trends report just while, a, we, while we're on the subject? I had a little gander. Just to um, introduce that to our listeners, that's uh, Gravio, as we know, like a video tools provider. Uh, they've done a, a survey in seven countries, including the UK. Um, and yeah, they've discovered a few things about viewing habits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of them which jumped out at me was kind of you know that more people are paying for an OTT service now than they yeah. are for than they are for pay TV, which maybe won't come as a surprise to many people, but at the same time it does just kind of indicate the shift and where things are going, and especially when you are talking about that about free swear and placing that context. Um, quite a neat line from that outskin piece that we spoke about before is um, kind of that irony of demanding that a um, that a rights holder, you know, puts more stuff on free to air to kind of reach the next generation of fan when they're not actually there anyway. Yeah. They're not actually watching on there. Um, you know, I think the way they they ended that piece was something along the lines of the future is in OTT but an afford a much more affordable price and it's yeah. kind of you know, where do you where do you strike that right balance? Because I guess no one's sort of found that happy medium just yet. Yeah. Um Well what you know, the the OTT services that Grabio is talking about, of course, are more, we mean Netflix, really, yeah. and Amazon Prime, um, rather than, you know, sports specialized mm-hmm. OTT services. There will be a bit of uh, a bit of that thrown into the mix, but instinctively that feels accurate. But um, yeah, certainly outside of the entertainment space, pay TV providers still have an enormous amount of cultural clout and an enormous amount of commercial clout. Yep. Um, and it will be interesting to see how that transition is managed and as I say some of that might come through partnership between media companies and, and rights holders in order to build offers that make sense commercially and also I guess steer some of these rights holders away from the cliff edge in terms of the, the value of, of what they're selling mm-hmm. um, and I think um, another thing that cropped out from that report was uh, 
basically the increase in demand for social video and obviously the use of social video and I guess that kind of points towards um, maybe something along the lines of what we've seen recently with more social viewing experiences possibly you know mm. more broadcasters integrating that into the into their coverage and it maybe even rights holders working with their broadcast partners suggesting that because you know I think we've seen the NBA trial things as they do um, I think Hotstar's been doing it during this Cricket World Cup has been integrating social viewing experiences so I think there were quite a few things in that report which not only kind of um, which not only pointed towards you know the platforms through which people are going to be consuming but the way they want to consume going forward I guess it's no longer enough to you know just have a stream of have a stream of the game and have yeah. people commentating over it people want to you know, it's not groundbreaking to, saying, to be saying this, but um, people want to be able to immerse themselves in it a lot more and just kind of share that viewing experience as if they were kind of in the same room watching as their friends. Yeah. Um, something that, again, going back to this morning, Gareth Kaplan, who's the um, uh, chief executive of, of Grabio, you know, and one of the things that he talked about is a lot of the flexibility in terms of how people experience sport, how people watch sport, is going to come from flexibility in the technology that's available to deliver it so you know there's a migration towards cloud-based production services and stuff like that we've seen uh, discovery have done that quite recently moving to a, like a fully cloud-based workflow uh, 5g is going to have an, an effect on um on that on both ends and the delivery side as well and people being able to more reliably access some of these more multi-layered sophisticated uh services as you say integrating social and integrating ultimately ar and vr and all that mm. type of stuff um, and the consumer tastes are going to follow that as well when when people are able to get these things and get them in a way that works they're going to want them more mm. right now you want to just sit back and watch sport because that you know that that's the best way you're going to experience it because it's the way that's actually going to going to work mm. another thing that was interesting just looking at the demographics in that report was obviously um you know older audiences have different tastes they tend to the more traditional but there is a sense that for example the uptake of ott services like netflix has risen among over 50s <laughs> as smart tv sales have gone up sure because you no longer have to go to a mobile device or find a workaround to get it onto your big screen you just it's either there on your if you're a pay tv subscriber so they're on your box mm -hmm. or it's there on your TV yeah. you can just input your details and you're away so you're not actually changing the way that you watch stuff that different you know that yeah. much um, and I think there's a lesson in that for yeah. uh, for, for how this market's going to develop yeah for sure I think also it's, it's very interesting that you mentioned that point about you know as smart more and more people have these smart TVs that um, that the adoption of platforms like Netflix is is increasing because you know as soon as as soon as you mention I don't know if I mentioned my dad um, that say the, the first year that the PGA Championship was on was on Eleven Sports and they were yeah. streaming it. I said, "Oh yeah, the the golf's on there," and he was like, "Oh, I'm gonna have to watch it on my laptop. I'm gonna have to watch it on my phone." Whereas you know, if you were to tell someone that, "Oh, it's only being streamed, but you can watch it on this smart TV," it suddenly becomes so much less of a disaster. Yeah. Like, the other lesson for sport in that kind of device adoption side of things is, you know, and again we're we're, we're going back to the. The relative challenges of a sport that lasts eight hours or a format that lasts eight hours and a format that lasts 90 minutes, if it's 90 minutes, you might be sat in front of a television or in a bar or whatever, and um, however intently you're watching it, you'll probably have it on the whole time. Um, if it's a longer format, if it's a cricket match, a golf tournament or whatever, you're probably going to want to be able to pick that up more 
across a range of different platforms. And it will be interesting to see how much more tailored these experiences get to different devices. And yeah, I mean, um, I mean, if you even uh, going back to the Cricket World Cup, and uh, if we're talking about the way people have been consuming this tournament, um, obviously games are going on during work, during school. Um, I'm sure a few people will admit to sitting at their desk with their phone at the side, streaming the game. Um, and then not you though, Sam. Not me, no, just Tom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, even looking beyond that, you know, if you um, another thing that Grabio report was about under twenty five and the way they watch YouTube now, um, you're increasingly seeing free highlights on YouTube yep. for every single sport, not just the Cricket World Cup, any major event. There's Women's World Cup highlights on there. Um, after the Champions League, you see broadcasters putting stuff on there as well. You know, that's people don't. If people have missed a live event, they don't want to sit around and wait for. 11 p.m. when the highlight show is going to run, they want to yeah. instantly log onto their laptop or um, go onto YouTube, go onto Facebook, and be able to watch it there. So as you say, um, the way those kind of uh, the way those sort of pieces of different content are tailored to those devices is going to be interesting. Yeah, really cool. and I think you've already kind of seen that as well. Right, um, I think that's enough, Sam. I think people have heard enough from us. They want to get I back have. to uh, to all this sport that's going on this summer. Yeah. Thanks very much, Sam. Thank you very much for having me over. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe, like, share, review, all the rest of it. Uh, Let people know we're here. We will be back with you next week. Bye-bye.